This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, welcome back. Mike Smith in for Simi. We're going to talk about ride hailing on the show today. Those ride hailing regulations out yesterday. This is like the final piece of the puzzle, puzzle here for ride hailing. And we've been talking about this for seven years now. Are we finally going to get these services just like they got in every major city pretty much around the world now? Now, here's the deal on this. The Passenger Transportation Board yesterday said there will be no hard cap on the maximum number of ride-hailing vehicles on the road. It'd be unlimited. Okay, so no limit on the number of Uber and Lyft vehicles on the road. And that has the taxi industry absolutely going ballistic today they are mad as hell we're going to hear from them on the show today they wanted limits they wanted some hard caps on the number of ride hailing drivers allowed on the road these regulations say no limits i think that's the way it should be put no limit on it all right and we'll see how it goes like let's just try it and if it results in some kind of crazy gridlock, because like everybody and their brother is suddenly an Uber driver, well, then you can change it, okay? That's what they did in New York City. It got a little out of control. They put limits on it. That's the way you do it. The taxi industry wanted these caps on it. They didn't get it. I think that's a good thing. So here's our hot question of the day. Despite pleas from the taxi industry, new regulations will allow an unlimited number of ride-hailing vehicles to operate in bc do you approve of this would you say yes i approve of this we need those ride-hailing cars on the street this is good or would you say no this is going to cause gridlock and congestion here's where you can vote on this today at cknw on twitter go there and you will find the hot question of the day at cknw on twitter while you are there please give me a follow at mike smith news on twitter s m y t h mike smith news on twitter i'll retweet the hot question of the day you can find it there too let's talk now about one of the big issues in this federal election campaign and that's the snc lavalin scandal the ethics violations by prime minister justin trudeau confirmed last week in a stunning report by the federal ethics watchdog the Trudeau broke the conflict of interest laws of Canada. Where does it all go from here? Let's talk to a great guest now, Jody Wilson-Raybould, the independent MP now for Vancouver-Granville, of course, the former Attorney General of Canada. In the eye of the storm on this one, I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Let's start with the report last week by Ethics Commissioner Mario Dion. I think Canadians owe him a, a big vote of thanks here for this report. His report found the Prime Minister and his people inappropriately pressured you to help this big company, SNC-Lavalin, deal with these uh, very serious criminal charges the company's facing. Just like you said, this report corroborates a lot of what you told Canadians. What was your reaction to that report? When you What went through your mind when you read it? Well, I, I mean, I was pleased to have received the report and to have read through all of its pages uh, to, to read and hear in the commissioner's own words the confirmation of what I went through. But, but the gratification came from having the commissioner confirm or vindicate the independent role of the attorney general, the director of public prosecutions, their roles in, in criminal proceedings. But, but I have to say, you know, in addition to that, I I did feel a, a sense of of sadness that we are in this situation, and that um, it's something that is still uh, being 
considered and um, has raised some significant concerns uh, for me, certainly, and for uh, the many people that I talk to. Did you feel any, I, I take your point about the sadness there. I think a lot of Canadians are kind of feeling uh, dubious about this whole thing too, for sure. Did you feel any kind of personal vindication from this report? I mean, there have been some liberals that have spoken out against you and criticized you and called you a traitor to the Liberal Party. I'm thinking of people like Sheila Copps and people like that. Did you feel personally vindicated as you, re- as you read that report that largely corroborated everything you said? Well, I, I, sure, I, I can say that reading the report and it, um, hearing the commissioner corroborate a lot of what I said, if not all of what I said, uh, was important for, for me. I think it's important to have an independent officer of parliament weigh in on, on these issues. I mean, we're talking about the Conflict of Interest Act and violating the Conflict of Interest Act. And I think raising these issues. Um, It's not specifically about the company. It's about the nature of the democracy we want to live in and ensuring that public officials in their role, doing their jobs, uphold the rule of law and make decisions based on values and principles, which is really important to me. And it's important to the many people in my riding and Canadians that I've talked to when reflecting on this issue. I I thought as I read this report, there were some disturbing new revelations in there there are things that we didn't know before and i know there there's stuff in there that you didn't know too right where there was what jumped out at you in this report that you didn't you didn't you didn't know before there were there were several revelations for me i didn't understand um and i actually still don't understand um the extent to which there were conversations between and among ministers, between and among ministers in the company and the prime minister's office. Um, that surprised me, the, um, the extent to which that was occurring um, without my knowledge. Um, also, um, I, the ethics commissioner, when I met with him in June, raised the, the question of the two legal opinions that were referenced in the, in the commissioner's report, um, which came as a, a significant surprise to me. All of this happening outside of my knowledge, which is concerning, having been the Attorney General at the time, and there was all these um, different uh, discussions happening uh, around uh, what was to be done um, with respect to SNC and with respect to the Deferred Prosecution Agreement. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's probably some of the most shocking content in this report, that there were these ongoing discussions with officials, with, with the company, about how to get what it wanted, uh, despite there was explicit advice from the Privy Council to basically to not do that. You know, you got these secret meetings with SNC, to d- Lavalin, to discuss new ways to pressure you. You know, and it, it, it almost seems like some of the people who are browbeating you and pressuring you to help this company were also at the same time in constant contact with the company who are defendants in a criminal matter. Is, is that disturbing to you to learn that that was going on? Well, I, I mean, I always say I never, should never be surprised about anything, but I'm consistently surprised about many things. Um, it, it, I find it disturbing. I think that um, the commissioner's report, um, this whole issue being on um, the, the attention of the, the country for as many months as it has been, um, should be of concern. It provides a window into how um, some decisions are made. Um, 
uh, for for my part and my role as the Attorney General, I was doing my job. And I think one of the major lessons that we as a country should learn from this is that we need to remain constantly vigilant about um, the foundation of our government and our democracy and ensure that when we entrust in public officials to make decisions that they're, they are, again, doing it and making decisions based on values and principles that we spent years as a nation fostering. Right. Speaking of Jody Wilson-Raybould, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer yesterday called for an RCMP investigation. Green Party leader Elizabeth May has called for an RCMP investigation. We've seen a large group of former Canadian attorneys general, a lot of whom I'm sure you know and respect. They're calling for the Mounties to get involved. What, what do you say? Should the, should the RCMP get involved here and investigate? Well, I I trust in the RCMP to to take the action that they deem appropriate. Um, I would leave it leave it at that and see um, what they determine to do as they right. obviously digest some of the information that has come to light in the ethics commissioner's report and and uh, other information that they may or may not have. You're leaving it up to the RCMP to decide whether or not to in- investigate the, the SNC-Lavalin scandal. You you have revealed that the Mounties did contact you earlier, back when the story first break broke earlier in the year with the with the uh, revelations in the Globe and Mail. What did the uh, when the Mounties contacted you back then? What did they uh, What did they ask you? What did they want to know? Well, I I did have a conversation with the the Mounties in the spring. And the nature of our conversations and discussions, I would uh, like to keep confidential. Do you think Justin Trudeau should apologize? I I do. I think that, um, and I've been pretty clear on this from almost the very beginning, I think that if you um, do something wrong, and in this case um, have an independent member of or officer parliament say that something seriously wrong would happen. You acknowledge um, the wrongdoing and apologize to Canadians for it. And we can work towards um, where trust has been damaged to, to rebuilding that trust. Yeah, I think it would be nice to hear an apology from, uh, from the Prime Minister. What, what do you think about his kind of constant talking points on this issue anytime he's asked about this? His response is, I'm not going to apologize for standing up for jobs. I was just trying to protect jobs at, at this company. What do you think of that? I mean, even the president of SNC-Lavalin has said, you know, the, the jobs argument is really irrelevant. If, they, if this company doesn't get contracts or if the company went down the tubes for some reason, uh, the people who work there would start work, get jobs somewhere else. I mean, do you think that's a legit argument for Trudeau to make that this is about jobs? Well, I... Nobody is going to say that jobs aren't important. As politicians and as Canadians, we all want to ensure that people have good, well-paying jobs. Um, But I think that it's important um, for us as Canadians to know that we live in a country where the rule of law is not violated at will or for political expediency. I mean, jobs and the investment in our country in terms of private investment, which creates jobs, um, we want to ensure that people investing understand the nature of our rules-based system, the nature of our democracy, and have certainty that those rules, that the laws will be followed. That's what creates right. certainty. That's what creates investment, and that's what creates jobs. So 
um, I will always err on the side of um, upholding um, the very nature of our democracy. And from that, uh, we can make the sound decisions that we need to, to make as elected officials based on what our constituents and the important issues that our constituents are telling us um, right. uh, to make. Speaking of your constituents, you're running for re-election in, in the fall as an independent MP now in Vancouver Granville. It's not very often that an independent can get elected to parliament in our country. It's, it has happened before, but it's kind of rare. What are you hearing from people in Vancouver Granville about your chances to get reelected as an independent MP? Well, I'm, I'm excited about running as an independent. I certainly would never have expected myself to be in this position, but I'm embracing it. And I'm not shy to hard work, and I know it's going to take a lot of hard work and, and commitment um, now leading up to the election. Um, I've been hearing from people on the doors, walking down the street, pretty overwhelming support in terms of myself personally, in terms of acknowledging what I went through, people thanking me for what I did in terms of standing up for integrity, for doing the right thing. Um, so that's really nice to hear and, and have that support. Um, knocking on doors and doing um, a bunch of different events in, in the riding, people are talking about, of course, the um, the environment and climate change. Affordability continues to be the biggest issue in Vancouver Granville. It was when I was knocking on doors 15 months before the last election. And affordability in terms of, of housing, um, being able to, to live where you work. Um, yeah. We have um, issues um, that come up around democratic reform. It's still something that um, is raised quite regularly. Healthcare, pharmacare, seniors. Um, there's real issues that people are speaking out on, and I look forward to uh, hopefully re-earning the the support of the people of Vancouver Granville and being a strong independent as much as right. um, I can nonpartisan voice in Ottawa for their issues. You you told me, I remember earlier, that the Liberal Party, you had always, always sort of considered that sort of your natural political home and that you supported the party for a long time. When the Prime Minister removed you from the Liberal caucus, did they kick you out of the Liberal Party too? You're not still a member of the Liberal Party, are you? Well, I'm technically still a member of oh. the Liberal Party. Um, I and, and to your, your question around values, and, and uh, I, I mean, I align most closely with values of the Liberal Party or the right. ideology of the Liberal Party around justice, around equality and inclusion. I mean, that's still who I am. I haven't changed. Um, I was never a member of a political party until you know, right before the last election when I joined the Liberals. Um, but again, I mean, what I want to represent and continue to um, how I represent the constituents of Vancouver Granville is still um, based on those values. Um, right. I take progressive approaches to issues. Um, but, uh, yeah, the Prime Minister unilaterally removed me from caucus. Um, and um, I look at federal politics. I look at and embrace and am honored to be the member of parliament for Vancouver Granville. And, and I feel that not one person can determine whether or not I continue in federal politics. So I'm going to work incredibly hard to re-earn the, the support of the people in Vancouver just, Granville. Just to finish up, let me just go back to the SNC-Lavalin story for, for a second. You have said 
that you, despite the the brow beating that was going on against you, the pressure that was put on you, uh, now we the revelation of these meetings with SNC Lavalin that was going on behind the scenes that you didn't even know about when you were the Attorney General, which is very disturbing. Despite all that, you have said you don't think anything illegal happened here, right? Is that still your position? You don't think anything illegal happened? Well, I, I mean. Uh, the Conflict of Interest Act was violated. That was yeah. I mean the criminal code. Yeah, I I made answer at the committee and recently in terms of uh, whether or not I think anything criminal happened. Um, based on my answer was no. Based on the information, the relevant information that I've been privy to, um, that was made um, by me at the at the Justice Committee based on the facts that I have. Um, the RCM police will do what they want and, and investigate or, or um, um, take action that they deem appropriate. Um, certainly, there's new relevations in the conflict or in the commissioner's report and other information that they may or may, may not have. Um, but for me, um, based on the information that I was privy to, um, right. then um, that's how I answered that question. Yeah, but but do you think now that are you saying that what maybe there were crimes committed now now that we know more information maybe the the criminal code was violated here? No, I'm not saying that. I I right. leave that determination to um, the RCMP if if they're uh, uh, in their actions and what actions they deem appropriate and taking in in this right. regard. My answer was based on the information that I had available to me. Okay, we continue to follow the story very closely, to say the least. I'm, I'm going to be very interested to follow your campaign to get reelected in Vancouver Granville. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. All right, that's Jody Wilson-Raybould, the independent MP for Vancouver Granville. It's not very often you get an independent wins election to the House of Commons in Ottawa. I think she's got a heck of a shot. What a great pleasure to welcome my next guest. She is a Canadian sporting icon. She is one of her own from right here in Burnaby. She is a three-time Olympian, two-time Olympic bronze medalist. She is the captain of Canada's national women's soccer team. She is, of course, the heart and soul of Canada, Christine Sinclair. Hello, Christine. Hello. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so thrilled to have you here. I'm such a huge fan. Uh, thank you for being here. Christine is here today to support A&W's burgers to beat ms campaign which we'll tell you all about here in a second also in the studio is susan senecal the president and ceo of a and w canada hiya susan good morning thank you guys for coming in here christine okay first of all let's talk about the uh burgers to beat ms here which is two dollars from every teen burger sold across canada this thursday will be donated to the ms society of canada which i think is awesome and Christine, you've got a personal connection here because your mom has MS, right? Yeah, yeah, she does. She was diagnosed uh, like 38 years ago. Wow, tell me what that's like. How's how's your mom dealing with that? Uh, I mean, she's a she's a fighter. Obviously, it's uh, taken a, a toll on her physically. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she's the strongest person I know, and yeah, she's fighting. Was she an inspiration to you growing up? Absolutely. I, well, and the fact that she claims she taught me everything I know about soccer. <laughs> oh, <So>, really? <laughs> yeah, she coached my first team. Oh, wow. So, yeah, she takes all the credit. Okay, well, that's really cool. <laughs> um, the Everybody loves a teen burger. Do you eat the teen burgers yourself, Christine? Are you a teen burger fan? I, I do like a good teen burger, but yeah, without okay. tomatoes. I don't like tomatoes. So. Okay, because I was just checking. I thought maybe as, so. a, as an athlete, I thought maybe you're like a vegan or something. Oh, no. 
No. Okay. No, Thank goodness that's crazy. For that. <laughs> 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 okay. Let me go to uh, the president of A and W uh, for a second. There, Susan Sanikel. Susan, tell me about this campaign here to beat MS. Uh, this is our 11th year partnering with the MS Society of Canada for Burgers to Beat MS, and we're very excited because we've got big targets this year. We've already raised over the past uh, 10 years over $13 million to support the great research and the support for people touched by MS across Canada. Um, Canada has one of the highest rates in the world of MS, and so it's particularly important, I think, for Canadian businesses to support uh, causes like this. So we look forward to Burgers to Beat MS Day. Uh, we've set our sights on hitting a $2 million target this year $2, as Christine said, from every teen burger sold on Thursday, August 22nd, go to support the work of the MS Society. And we're tremendously excited and very proud of uh, our teams across the country that are all gearing up for this uh, great day. Okay, I think that's great. And I uh, wish you the best of luck with that. Just going back to Christine Sinclair. Christine, you mentioned that your, your mom has got MS and she's lived with it for, for a long time. Is that kind of a degenerative thing? I mean, does it kind of get worse over time? Yeah, I mean, obviously the disease is different in everyone and it affects everyone differently. Um, for my mom, it wasn't until I was like eight or nine that you started to, to see the effects. She started to walk a little bit more rigid and soon was walking with a cane. Um, and then it's obviously progressed from there. And, uh, yeah, with my mom, it's been a, yeah, a slow downward, uh, spiral sort of, uh, as it like physically deteriorates her. Well, that's tough. That's real tough. How's she doing today? Uh, yeah, she's doing all right. She's in mm -hmm. New Westminster. She, so I'm sure she's listening. So hi mom. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but no, she, she's doing okay. Okay, that's, that's wonderful. And this is great that you've teamed up with A&W here to fight MS. I think that's fantastic. Christine, let me ask you a little bit of a few soccer questions because I can't resist because okay, we've got the not? opportunity okay. here. Why not, right? Yeah. Um, let's talk about uh, how many international goals you have scored. You are number two on the all-time list, right? Yes. You got, uh, you're two behind Abby Wambach. Of the Americans, you've got, uh, by my count, you got 182 goals, right? Uh, you probably know better than me. Um, <laughs> okay. I just know I'm two behind her. You're two behind. How yeah. important is that to you, that record, to, to beat that record? Um, I mean, it would be cool to have a Canadian on the, on the top of the world record like that. Uh, I don't think anyone would expect a Canadian to have a record like that. And yeah. I think it would be pretty cool. Um, it's never been my focus, that's for sure. But now right. that I'm this close, I may as well just do it. Um, so, yeah, it'll happen. When's, when's your next crack at it? When, do Canada, when does Canada play again? Uh, I think our next games will be next month. Okay, so. cool. Well, I'm, looking for, I'm looking forward to that. 182 goals. Do you remember your very first goal? I do. It was against Norway in my second ever game on a breakaway. Yeah, I remember that one. What would you say? I'm wondering what maybe in your mind might be your favorite goal. I, I remember, I think, probably the most thrilling game I ever saw you play, just as, just as a fan, was the 2012 Olympic semifinal against the USA, where you scored a, a hat trick. Now, have a listen to this, Christine, see if you remember this goal. Sinclair's in the penalty area. Cross towards Christine Sinclair! Oh! A second goal of the night! 
Okay, that was your second goal in that game. What do, you, what do you remember from that game? I know it was a disappointing finish, right? But, I mean, what a thrilling game that was. Yeah, I was going to say, I remember we lost. Yeah, <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> um, with a few maybe questionable calls. Oh, yes. Um, no, I mean, for me, that game was obviously special. Just, I'm a soccer fan. Manchester United, Old Trafford. Um, it was my first time ever playing in a stadium like that. And, yeah, obviously taking the Americans as as close to like penalty shots as you can get without getting there and yeah and then obviously the heartbreak that came with that but then seeing how our team rebounded from that and won our next game against France and brought home our first Olympic medal um yeah it was just a it was a wild ride uh, those like 48 hours <laughs> oh my god so vivid in my memory i think it was one of the greatest games i've ever seen and, and certainly like you said like a disappointing finish but boy when you rebounded to win that bronze medal that was almost like winning the gold i mean it just felt so satisfying where, where where does that rank the two bronze medals of course canada won bronze again in the next olympics where does that rank in your career is it kind of the top of the tier uh yeah i mean obviously yeah. the first one was very special dream come true um couldn't believe like a canadian kid playing soccer was winning an olympic medal and it's just yeah nothing i'll something i'll never forget and the second one was actually kind of disappointing because i truly felt like it should have been a different color that that mm. medal um we played one poor half and it cost us a chance at gold um but obviously yeah i can't complain about an olympic medal <laughs> no no i think it's, it's wonderful I was, you've done canada so proud um Let's talk about the the recent World Cup here. I know I know you had a disappointing result there in the World Cup, going out in the round of sixteen when Canada lost lost to Sweden, which I, I know is a, a disappointment for you. Let me ask you maybe kind of a bit of a tough question. There there was a there was a point in that game where there was a penalty kick had to be taken. You had an opportunity to tie that game, and I think I remember watching that game and I thought, okay, here comes Christine to take this penalty kick, but. Instead, you had Janine Becky, I believe, took the penalty kick, right? And, and sadly, she took a great penalty, but, the, you know, a good save by the Swedish goalie. How come you didn't take that penalty kick that day? Yeah, I mean, so there's a group of us that take PKs after every practice and work on them. And, I mean, the Swedish goalkeeper had saved the last one I took against her, which was in March. And oh. so, uh, yeah, I mean, Janine, you want it? Yeah, okay, this is all you. And, I mean, the guts that it took for her to step up and take that. Um, she's fearless. And, yeah, I mean, she struck it well. That's all I said yeah. to her after the game was, did you hit it where you wanted to? And she's like, yeah. And then that's penalty shots for you. You know, the keeper made a world-class save. And, yes. And we're out. Um, but I think the, the glaring issue in that game was the fact that we didn't we didn't have a shot on goal in the whole game. And mm. you're not going to win a tournament with that. So, that's the the focus heading into next summer. Speaking to Christine Clare, the captain of Team Canada, is is that your call, Christine? When you know you get a high pressure penalty kick like that, and is that your call whether to take the shot, the penalty kick? No, no. I mean, like I said, there's a group of us that sort of work on them every day in training. Um, yeah, so it's, it's kind sort of, a collect, of it's a one of those decision. sort of things. If you're feeling it on the day, you step up and you take it. Okay, what Canada's women's team have, have done have done is so proud. What do you think is the secret of success here for the Canadian team? And I wonder if you could comment on 
what's wrong with the Amer- uh, the Canadian men's team? Like, you know, like you guys have done so awesome winning Olympic medals and the men's team is ranked something like, I don't know, like 78 in the world. We just lost to Haiti. I mean, what's up with that? How, how come you guys are doing so great and what's wrong with the men's team? Um, well, I think when you look at the women's team, uh, we, right from the get-go, we were one of, uh, you know, maybe a dozen countries and federations that supported their women's program from the from the onset and we've sort of stayed there uh the game is growing and you're seeing more top european teams asian teams that are sort of pushing the envelope and pushing our program and i think as a women's team as a women's program we need to step up and i mean we're one of i think we're the only country in the top like 12 that doesn't have a professional league or a professional environment for their players to play in so we we have a lot of work to do as a women's program but on the men's side I mean they're in the right hands with John Herdman as their their head coach and I think you're just going to see like them grow I, I, it's going to be amazing to watch the growth under John. And it, it wouldn't surprise me if they were in the next World Cup. And then obviously hosting the one after that is just going to be tremendous for, for soccer in this country. I hope you're right. John Herdman, of course, your, your former coach there, he was the former coach of the, the women's team, and then he went over to coach the men's team. Was that tough for you guys to take? I know you guys really liked him as a coach. Yeah, I mean, obviously he... He took us to new levels as our yeah. coach and winning back-to-back Olympic medals with him. And, yeah, he took our team from finishing dead last at a World Cup to, yeah, back-to-back podiums. Um, we obviously, like, ultimately knew that he wanted to jump to the men's side. Uh, I think his ultimate goal is to right. coach Newcastle. Um, mm. But, yeah, obviously it was a shock when it happened. Um, but, yeah. We love we love Kennett and he's an incredible coach and yeah we're we're succeeding the men are succeeding I mean we're both pretty happy I think right well you guys continue to succeed and, and do Canada so proud I, I always look forward to watching you play and when when are we uh, when do you expect to play the Americans again and this is the fierce rivalry what's it like when you when you take the pitch against the Americans I mean is it just like a different feeling when you go up against them uh, well we most likely will play them again in January or February. Um, that's when Olympic qualifiers are. And then, you know, I think the rivalry has changed a little bit in that most of us play in the U.S. professionally and we're actually friends with them and teammates with them. Mm. Um, but obviously, once you put on your national team jersey, it changes a little bit. But, I mean, yeah, you, it's, yeah you're, you're friends with them now. Okay, except when the except when the whistle blows and you start. Yeah, start for the those game, right? 90 okay. minutes, you're not. <laughs> okay. Christine, it's awesome to have you here. You're a true Canadian hero here, and uh, great job with uh, A&W and supporting the MS research and the campaign to beat MS. Thank you for coming in today. Thank you for having Thanks. us. I appreciate it a lot. That is Christine Sinclair. She is the president, of, or she is the captain of Team Canada. Also had Susan Senecal there, uh, the president of A&W Canada. Didn't speak much to Susan because I, yeah, I wanted to talk to Christine, okay? But um, look, support A&W's annual campaign to beat cancer here. $2 from every teen burger sold across Canada. That is this Thursday. My thanks to Christine Sinclair for coming in today. It is a crime 
to travel internationally uh, with a goal of supporting terrorism or engaging in terrorism. Uh, and that is a crime that we will continue uh, to uh, make all attempts to prosecute to the fullest extent of the law. So you're not open to him coming to Canada? We continue to recognize that it is a crime to travel for the purpose of uh, engaging in terrorist activities. Okay, that's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, speaking about Jihadi Jack. What a saga this is. Jack Letts, he's uh, better known as Jihadi Jack, especially in the British media. He is a British-Canadian man who traveled to Syria to join ISIS fighters in 2014. He was captured by Kurdish forces there. He has been in a prison in northern Syria ever since now he wants to come back to canada now he was not born in canada he was born in the uk but look what the united kingdom did this week they stripped him of his british citizenship so he no longer has british citizenship he is still though a canadian citizen he wants to come to canada now have a listen to this he spoke to itv news last night from a kurdish jail cell in northern syria here he is the British government, even if they didn't strip me of my British citizenship, it's almost as if I'm not a British citizen anyway. Uh, these things, they have uh, very little meaning to me, to be honest. I don't actually think having British citizenship is a big deal. I've always felt that I'm a mix. And I've been to Canada seven times, you know, I spent a lot of time in Canada. My whole family is Canadian. And I have no relatives in Britain anyway, everyone's in Canada. And yeah, I, I always expected Canada would help me and they didn't, you know. I hope Canada does take me from here if they can. They take me to Canada. That would be good. Okay, that's Jack Letts, a.k.a. Jihadi Jack, speaking in a Kurdish jail cell in Syria. He wants to come to Canada now. Should Canada take him in? We got a great panel here to talk about just that now. Amarnath Amarsingham is on the line. He is an assistant professor at the School of Religion, Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Hi. Hi. Thanks for Thanks. having me. Thank you for coming on. Also on the line is Mubin Sheikh. He is a former undercover operative for CSIS and the RCMP involved in the fight against ISIS. Hi, Mubin. Hey, thanks for having me. Currently, but thank you, Mubin. Thank you for being here. Uh, Amarnath, let me go to you first. Jihadi Jack, Jack Letts, should we let him into Canada? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think um, I, I think every Canadian citizen who's currently in prison over in Syria, um, and right now we have about uh, six men, nine women, and eighteen children by my count. Um, the vast majority of children are under five. Um, I think I think they all uh, should be let back into Canada, uh, arrested and charged if possible, and um, should should face do uh, do justice. Why do you think they should be allowed back into Canada after they've gone over to fight with a with an organization as odious as ISIS? It's terrible. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think they're currently in they're currently in Kurdish uh, custody, and I don't think the Kurds um, are are really equipped to handle them in any in any meaningful way in the long term. I was there in October, and it was pretty clear even then um, that they're not uh, capable of keeping uh, thousands of prisoners and thousands of women and children. Um, 
in their custody for the extended period of time. If they don't have the resources, uh, children are dying in their custody, um, and I, I don't think uh, it's their responsibility uh, and our, our kind of moral responsibility to put the burden on them to kind of continue to care for our citizens. Okay, let's let me go to Mubin Sheikh now, who works with CSIS and the RCMP in the fight against ISIS. Mubin, should we take Jihadi Jack into Canada? Well, I think uh, only if we're forced to. I think a better argument or a reasonable argument remains that he committed crimes, uh, you know, on foreign soil. And there are countries out there that have legal jurisdiction to to take custody of these people and to punish them. Now, the problem is, of course, is that we should, of course, have an expectation of some kind of rights as Canadian citizens. And Iraq, what they've been doing is they've really been executing a lot of people. The trials don't last very long. Um, they're not very credible. So uh, rather than us, you know, kind of shrug our shoulders and, and think, well, Iraq is no good, so we got to take them back, I think we should try to assist in the creation of an international tribunal uh, to try them over there according to due process principles. Okay, do you think he's going to get any due process in Syria, though? Uh, not Syria. I mean, Syria is completely compromised. I wouldn't. I wouldn't yeah. accept that. Uh, Iraq, though, Iraq has is still a legitimate player in this regard. I, I understand. I totally get it. You know, their system is not like our system. But I also kind of see it from their perspective, which is, hold on a second. Your people came to our country and committed these crimes, and you're telling us we can't punish them according to our laws. So that's another problem. Let me go back to Amarnath, Amar Singh, I'm from Queen's University. Amarnath, why do you think it would be better to bring, it, bring them here? I mean, do you think there's a greater risk in, in leaving these foreign fighters in, in these foreign jails? Are they a greater risk over there than bringing them back into to Canada to face justice here? Um, absolutely. I mean, I think I think it's they're, they're currently living in a kind of legal limbo. So all the men are in prisons uh, near Kamishli in, in northwestern northeastern Syria. All the women and children are in uh, a variety of IDP makeshift IDP camps uh, close by. Um, and we're now dealing with a situation where the Americans might pull out of northeastern Syria and the SDF and the Kurds largely watch these prisons uh, with the support of the Americans. And so if the Americans leave, um, you, there's a real possibility that the Syrian regime uh, might try to take back some Kurdish territory. There's a real threat that the Turkish government might invade uh, northeastern Syria and take control of cities where these prisons and camps actually exist. Um, and so it, it's just a bizarre um uh, not not bizarre, but it's it's a kind of uncertain uh, situation that they that we find ourselves in, and I think um, if we don't want a situation where they somehow these highly uh, trained individuals somehow get back into the battlefield and join uh, other organizations, um, I think it's imperative that we kind of bring them back and charge them here. Um, as, as my friend Stephanie Carvin says, you got to deal with your own garbage if you're a Western country, right? And I think. And I think it's important that we uh, stick to those values and, and, and try to charge them here. Mubin, this is a guy, I think if you asked a lot of Canadians, a lot of Canadians might say, look, this guy went to Syria to fight with ISIS. He's been quoted in the media as saying he would be willing, he was willing to do a suicide attack while with ISIS. A lot of a lot of Canadians might say, just let him rot. Why bring him back into Canada? Just let him rot in that jail cell in Syria. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I mean, somebody like him, I don't mind if he does rot in a prison cell over there, I'll be honest. Um, yeah. I am a little bothered by the women and children situation. I mean, the children, of course, 
uh, even though uh, my friend Amarnath and I are on the opposite ends on this on this topic, we agree the children are innocent and we should do what we can to to repatriate them. But that will open larger questions right now of taking custody of those children away from the mothers, possibly prosecuting the mothers. It's it's a real mess because some you know for the for the psychological stability of that child they need the mother. But when the mother is the adverse influence. You know, when you take that kid, when you take the mother away, you know, it's going to be very difficult for that child to, to reintegrate and to, you know, to kind of make sense of what's happened to them. So yeah. none of the options are good. Um, you know, if, if, if they can be tried in the international tribunal, that's, of course, ideal. I understand that it's coming to a point where we want a quick resolution. Keep in mind, even if we take back, what is it, by Amarnath's count, uh, 33 people, I mean, that's not even a drop out of that ocean of others that will continue to remain in that kind of custody. And just one last thing about, you know, it's not our garbage that we dumped over there. You know, security services were trying to prevent people from leaving. There was a lot of uh, of pushback, actually, against security services when they were trying to do that. So it's not like we, you know, voluntarily sent these people over and now we got to deal with them. Canada is not at fault here in any way and that's something that i think we should all remind ourselves of amarnath what do you say to that no i think that's absolutely right it's not it's not canada's fault but i don't think uh that's the argument i think the argument is that these these young people were radicalized within our borders um and and they are our citizens and by that by that very fact if if citizenship is to mean anything we have to respect uh, respect what it means and, and and deal with our citizens i i totally understand from from a from a canadian perspective um you know th- these guys joined an organization that provided second chances to very few people they executed and and massacred uh thousands of people they also right. uh quite openly uh burned their passports and renounced their citizenship and now uh, they turn around and say actually i want that citizenship back i want that citizenship respected and at the same time, I want a second chance. I want uh, be able to be able to come back and uh, try to live my life. So I get I get the pushback. It's just I don't. Right. I, I think there's a broader. <clears throat> I think there's a broader argument to be made that uh, the national security situation in the region is volatile. Uh, that uh, there's a kind of moral argument to be made that Syrians and uh, Iraqis have suffered enough. Civilians have suffered enough there under the hands of foreign fighters. The thousands of foreign fighters have traveled over there, and they shouldn't have to kind of continue to house the burden. Uh, of our citizens, even though they had nothing to do, you know, they're, they're just as much as victims as, as anything. So okay. um, they, they, they shouldn't just be left there, I think. Okay, here's what I'll you do, know, guys. Can, I'll can t- I just... Yeah, move in real quick. Just, just real quick. I mean, look, at the end of the day, you know, look at, look at what's being said here. They've committed these sorts of crimes, murder, rape, pillaging. And what's, what's going to happen to them when they come back? You know, giving a second chance, that's great, but... These people have blood on their hands. They killed people. And we don't just easily uh, say, oh, you know, just shrug our shoulders and say, oh, well, you know, nobody can try them. We can't offload them to other countries who want to execute them. Now we're left with, you know, the, the, the leftovers, basically. So it's a bad situation, you know, and I don't think we need to be in a rush to repatriate some of them. Jihadi Jack Saga Jack Letts. He's the British Canadian man who went to Syria to join ISIS fighters in 2014, captured by the Kurds in northern Syria. He's been in jail there ever since. He wants to come to Canada now. My guests are Amarnath Amar Singham from Queen's University, Mubin Sheikh. He works with CSIS and the RCMP in the fight against ISIS. Mubin, let me ask you about your background. You got an amazing story here. 
you uh, are a co-author of the book Undercover Jihadi. You used to be associated with the Taliban, right? Yeah, in my teenage years, I similarly went through a period of radicalization, came to support the Taliban shortly thereafter. A guy named Osama bin Laden, maybe you heard of him. Uh, then 9-11 happened, made me rethink my commitment to the cause. I went to Syria, I studied Islam, de-radicalized, came back to Canada and basically signed up on the dotted line and joined the intelligence service as an undercover, worked with them for a few years. Uh, a bunch of guys got arrested in what was called the Toronto 18 case in 2006, oh, yeah. spent four years in court actually prosecuting these offenses. So when we talk about, you know, even the prime minister saying he believes it's a crime for these people to dot, 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 you know, prosecuting, it's not what you know, it's what you can prove in court. Uh, so I sat in a court context in that regard uh, for four years, uh, was done in 2010, got out, saw the rise of ISIS in real time, and I've been on this file since. Okay, Mubin, if you were able to become de-radicalized like, like you described there, what about this jihadi jock? Because he's kind of saying the same thing now. He's saying, well, I made mistakes, I want to change my ways. Don't you? Th what about? Shouldn't maybe maybe we should bring him back to Canada and de-radicalize him over here? But you don't think we should do that, right? Well, look, I mean, de-radicalization is not a magic bullet, right? And and, and it works mm -hmm. in a case by case basis. Uh, I'm sure he he says and maybe even believes all these things. And I don't, you know, I don't question that much that he's uh, remorseful after the conditions that he's in. Um, but again, mm -hmm. what what I worry about is that assessment uh, of him, right? Who's going to do that? You know, I want to be sure that whoever is doing that is watching out for, you know, deception detection, uh, because we've seen this, you know, we've seen where they, they will say exactly what you want to hear uh, in the hopes that they'll get a lower sentence and then, you know, lay low for a few years and then they're out. So uh, while I don't exclude him from being able to be de-radicalized, you know, I just, I proceed with uh, with a large amount of caution. Amarnath, what do you think of that? No, I think that that's completely accurate. I mean, it's not it's not a question of uh, perfect science. I mean, um, you know, just because we have firefighters doesn't mean there's not going to be any more fires. Um, there, there, it's, it's not a perfect science, and we're, we're kind of working towards figuring out ways to um, do an assessment with these guys, do a risk assessment with these guys, and it, it, it's always going to be, uh, a level of uncertainty there. But I think one thing we have to keep in mind, and I don't know if many Canadians even realize this, is like we have foreign fighters, returnees back in Canada already from a whole host of previous conflicts from Somalia, from Chechnya, Bosnia, uh, Afghanistan, uh, even from Sri Lanka. And so this idea that um, it, we're only now dealing with this problem or we don't, this is a kind of new phenomenon um, it, it's completely untrue. I mean, we, we, we have people who fought in conflicts abroad back in Canada already from a variety of different conflicts, and we haven't had a single attack by a returnee in Canada in, in its entire history. So, um, mm. you know, we do have to keep, we, have, we do have to keep in mind that, the, yeah, when they say I'm reformed, when they say I'm apologetic, take it with a grain of salt. But um, at the same time, we, we do know that things like battle fatigue and um, moving on with your life and de-radicalization does happen. People do quit terrorist groups. That's happened uh, all the time in, in uh, countries abroad as well. So um, it's not it's not only Canada that's dealing with this, and it's not just an ISIS phenomenon. This is a there's a broad history uh, of okay. this that we should keep in mind. We just have one minute left, guys. Mubin, you're kind of living proof of that de-radicalization, aren't you? <laughs> 
Yeah, well, it's it's kind of ironic that I'm taking a hardline stance when it comes to these people, largely because I am a Muslim, and because of what this group has done to the image of Islam, to the situation of Muslims, uh, I remain very tough on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mercy is not reserved for these people; it's reserved for the victims of these people. So I'm going to take the hardline position when it comes to this stuff, totally because of my own personal life bias. Yes. Gentlemen, I want to thank both of you for coming on for uh, doing an excellent panel on this important topic. Thank you very much. Thank yeah, you. Amar's a great guy to have as well, so thanks. Thank you, guys. Amarnath Amar Singham, he's a, an assistant prof at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Mubin Sheikh, he's a former extremist with the Taliban who turned undercover operative with CSIS and the RCMP. Let's talk about ride hailing coming to British Columbia later this fall. We had a critical announcement on this file yesterday when the Passenger Transportation Board of BC announced some of the regulations about how this ride hailing is going to work. For people who want to see Uber, Lyft, these other ride-sharing companies to get up and running in British Columbia. Uh, that was a kind of a good day yesterday. These companies are happy, mainly because the board decided there will be no limits on the number of ride-hailing vehicles on the street. There will be no maximum cap on the number of vehicles allowed out there. Also, uh, very large geographical boundaries for these ride-hailing companies to operate. Uh, the government stepping in to regulate some of their fares, but that's not a deal breaker either. They're happy. Uber and Lyft are happy. The people who want ride-hailing, they're happy with these rules. The taxi companies, not so much. They are not happy with these rules. They wanted to see some caps on the maximum number of ride-hailing drivers out there. Let's check in now with Mohan Kang. He's the president of the BC Taxi Association. Mohan, it's good to talk to you again. Thank you, sir. Thanks for inviting. Sure, you bet. What is your reaction to these rules that were laid out yesterday? Well, our members are disappointed with the that there's no cap on the number of ride-hailing vehicles. Uh, We would have suggested or has suggested during some meetings that they can do it as a pilot project or so, giving certain number of ride-hailing vehicles to operate, and then they can make the decision if they need more, give them more. If that was a suffice number, then so be it. But I think that was uh, uh, not decided by the PT board. Why did you want to see a cap? Why is that an important issue for you? Cap, we have to have a fair competition. Like with this thing, we do not have a fair competition in a sense they have a vast area they can cover. They have a vast number of vehicles. And uh, we don't have the same criteria where we could have a level playing field and compete with the right hitting. Okay, I think the government, though, has brought in some rules that are advantageous to the taxi industry, like, for example, the requirement for a Class 4 commercial driver's license to be an Uber or a Lyft driver. It seems to me that's going to severely limit the pool of, of ride-hailing drivers out there. I mean, that's a good thing for the taxi sector, isn't it? Well, that is also not a new thing when you see the next to Alberta, 
they have the class four in Calgary. They have class four in Edmonton also. It's yeah. a good step because you got a professional driver, but that is not a big concession. But we were saying uh, that we are, you know, we are not objecting. We are not happy with the way they have said unlimited numbers. What do you think it's going to mean for the taxi business? Well, it will definitely have a negative impact financially on the drivers, and uh, subsequently, it can make a difference in the service also. We want to improve the service, not to lower the service. Okay, what do you say to people, Mohan, out there who are listening to this saying, like, look, you know, the taxis have had pretty much a monopoly on this service for, for decades we got to get with the modern world here. These are services that are available in uh, big cities all around the world. We're the largest city in North America, still doesn't have Uber and Lyft and these other ride-hailing services. Like, come on, let's get with it here. We have to have these services. Two answers for your question. Number one, we never said that the ride-hailing should not be introduced into BC. You check it up, our uh, official or public statements by the association who always said they're welcome, provided they meet the safety standard and there's a level playing field. Yeah. Right. And uh, we, we have no, no, no problem with that one. Do you think but, that w- with an unlimited number of ride-hailing drivers allowed on the road, even with the Class 4 restriction for a license, do you think that that was, could potentially lead to heavier traffic, gridlock, traffic jams on the street? Absolutely. The congestion is going to be a big problem. I uh, have seen some reports from San Francisco where they started, and they have a big-time problem, and other cities also. In fact, the New York is cutting down their idling time from, I believe, from 40.1% to 30.12 or something, that they can't idle. They have to stop. I'm, I'm talking about the ride-hailing vehicles. Yeah. So the congestion is a big-time problem by adding the unlimited numbers on the road, irrespective in downtown or in Surrey or other places, is going to create congestion, or, and also it is going to create more green gas emissions. What is your message to the B.C. government on this today? Well, they have made the decision, and uh, the association is not happy, and uh, I think they should have you know uh, dig deep into the uh, whole issue like when they introduced the bus lane for the taxis in Vancouver they went for the pilot project yeah. right so why not why not in the ride hailing they have waited so long maybe another six months them operating yeah. in BC would have given them the better chance to know how many vehicles are needed? Mo- Mohan, we've been waiting long enough. We've been waiting seven years for these services. And I've been saying to you and the others for the last seven years, sir, that we have no problem. Why didn't the right hailing come that time and abided by the rules? Mohan, thank you for coming on. You're welcome, sir. Thanks. Okay, that's Mohan Kang. He is the president of the BC Taxi Association. Let's talk about a wild day at the racetrack yesterday. Hastings Park Racecourse. 
That's a place I enjoy visiting when I get the opportunity. I, I usually don't bet very much on the horses because I'm terrible at picking winners. Absolutely the worst. My dad was pretty good, though, in the old days. So, you know, it's always enjoyable, I think, to go down to racing, uh, Hastings Park and watch a couple of horse, watch some horse races on a nice day. It was a wild day there yesterday, though. Uh, border officials, Canada Border Services Agencies, uh, showed up very early yesterday morning, uh, escorted a number of people away who were employed by horse owners down there. What is going on at Hastings Park? Let's check in now with David Milburn. He's the president of the Horsemen's Benevolent and Protective Association. That's a major industry uh, horse racing uh, group here in B.C. David, thanks for coming on. You're welcome. Good to talk to you, Mike. Appreciate it, David. I know you were there at Hastings Park yesterday morning, bright and early at 6 a.m. What were you doing down there, training some horses, or what was going on? Well, I wasn't actually there at 6 a.m. Our barn starts a little later than that, but I was there by 6.30. And what happened was uh, shortly before 6.30, a number of agents and officials from the Border Services people, CBSA, Canadian Border Services, and also GPEB, that's a gaming policy enforcement branch, uh, they descended on the racetrack, entered the racetrack, descended on it, and estimates range from 25 to 40 officials and agents. And you could clearly see who they were because they were all wearing black, black uniforms or black jackets with the name of their organization on the outside. Wow. Then, yeah. go ahead, go uh, ahead. Ca- carry on, keep telling me the story, that's okay. So, and then what um, what occurred was uh, they moved to various location on, locations on the backstretch. When I say the backstretch, that's the part where the public does not have access. When you go to the races, you're talking about going to the races and betting on the horses. That's the front side, that's the grandstand, the paddock, the racetrack itself. The backstretch is where the horses are housed and the persons, that people that work on the horses, they work there. It's a secure compound. It's 24 hours a day security, and you need a license, a GPEB license, in order to get on the backstretch, hmm. let alone work on the backstretch. So it's a secure facility, and now the agents are there and the officers are there, and they're arresting people and putting them in handcuffs. You know, you've used the word escorting. Well, that sounds like a pretty polite way of saying detained in handcuffs. You're under arrest. You're under detention. And you're being marched out the gate. So that's what happened. Um, grooms, uh, for the most part, uh, it's my understanding there were grooms were arrested, put in handcuffs in front of many cases in front of uh, co-workers. What does a groom do at the track? A groom is an individual who is employed, first of all. And look, when we're talking about employment, I want to make something really crystal clear. This has absolutely nothing to do with Hastings, race course, the track operator, Great Canadian Gaming Corporation. We've heard a lot about the casinos in the last um, several months. You've done a number of, uh, a lot of reporting on that uh, yourself, Mike. Great Canadians got absolutely nothing to do with this issue. None of these individuals are employed by Great Canadians. So they're all employed but they'll be employed by trainers, licensed trainers, and trainers are the managers of the racehorses and have a stable of 
racehorses and owners will own that and pay the trainer in order to train the horses and get them fit and get them in races and so on. So to circle back to your question about what a groom does, a groom is the individual who is primarily responsible for the horse husbandry side of the business. So they're looking after the horse, they're cleaning the stall, they're feeding the horse, they're grooming the horse, they're brushing, they're picking its feet. They're tacking the horse in the morning, the exercise in the morning, and the tack is the riding equipment that goes on. So they place the riding equipment on. The exercise rider, that's a person who gets on the horse's back, will then take the horse and take it to the racetrack, exercise it on the racetrack, bring it back to the groom, and the groom will receive the horse, take off the tack, wash it down, cool it out. Cooling out is walking it around and then putting it back into its freshly renovated stall. And then later in the day, uh, grooming the horse, brushing it, picking its feet, etc. And okay. looking for the horse right around the clock. Okay, David, why would Canada Border Services come down and arrest a bunch of these people? Are, are these foreign workers primarily? Are they from Mexico or something, maybe in the country illegally? Why would they be arrested? Well, we're not getting a lot of answers. We're asking questions but not getting any answers. The answers we're getting are probably the same that you're getting, which is, this is a um, CBSA investigation, and while it's ongoing, they're not going to give any answers. So that's where we're at. Now, it's my understanding that the grooms that were arrested are not um, resident Canadians. I might be wrong on that because it's uh, based on my talking to other trainers at the racetrack. So they're grooms. In most cases, they're foreign workers. Now, when you say illegally in the country... Uh, you got to know this. Everybody that walks through the backstretch has to have a license. Right. And the licensing is done through GPM, the Gaming Policy Enforcement Branch, and that's provincial. And so when you want to work on the backstretch, you have to apply for a license. You fill out the forms. They do the vetting, and they give you a license. And then when armed with that license, that's the only time you can work. So our members, trainers... They can't hire somebody without a license. So, Mike, if you wanted to walk a horse in my barn at the racetrack and said you had a bunch of experience and uh, I'll walk that horse, I'd have to say, no, sorry, Mike, you can't do it Hmm. because you're not licensed. You need a license to do it. So in order for that to occur, I'd have to take you up to the office where the GPEP offices are. You'd fill out a lengthy application. You'd have your uh, photograph taken. They would do some vetting. They might give you a temporary license for 10 days or so until the vetting process is over, and then they'll give you a, uh, a license for the year with your photograph on it. And then you show it when you go through the gate. So our trainers are employing people, grooms, that have a GPEB license in hand. Is, you is got one that of the, point? Yes, I understand that. Is, is one of the conditions of the license that you're in the country legally, like if you're a foreign worker... Do you have to show that you're you're a, a legal a, a foreign worker who is legally in Canada and legal to work here? Is that part of the conditions to get the license? Look, you've got to ask GPEB those questions, right? And I'm not trying to move it off, but they are the regulator. They're the ones that are responsible for the licensing of people. So I'm not familiar with what they do when a person's a foreign worker coming in and the checks and balances that GPEB takes, I don't know. You'd have to address what? that question to GPEB. Why do they bring in foreign workers to exercise the horses? Are there not enough people here to do that job here? Okay, now you use the word exercise. 
I've yeah. been using the word groom, right? Well, groom. And well, I've know. been explaining what a groom does. So the exercise person's the one getting on the horse's back. The groom okay. is doing the day-to-day, taking care of the horse, and the groom will usually look after four or five horses. Okay. Why, why, do, we need, so you, why do we need foreign workers to do that job? Are there not enough local workers to do that? Well, it's uh, tough getting local workers. Um, hmm. Even at the level of a groom, there's specialized skills required. The thoroughbreds are extremely difficult to deal with, some of them. They're high-charged, high-strung animals, and uh, you, you have to have skills in dealing with them, and it's hard to acquire those skills. And the Vancouver job market's been pretty robust, pretty good. Now, some people would disagree with that, but there's been times when, when it hasn't been so good, and there's been more of an abundance of grooms on the track. Now, I don't believe there's that many foreign workers on the racetrack. Um, by and large, the people that are on the racetrack are resident Canadians or Canadian citizens. We try and hire Canadians first, in my view. Our organization, the HBBABC, does not facilitate bringing in foreign workers. So we don't help people to bring in uh, foreign workers as a groom. Individual trainers may decide that they can't find somebody locally, so they go through the process, whatever that is, in order to bring a foreign worker in and then have that person licensed through GPEP. So the people that were rounded up and, and handcuffed, those are, it's my understanding, those are foreign workers. And how many there are, I don't know. David, we continue to follow it with great interest. Thanks for coming on. You bet. Anytime. Thanks. Okay. Bye. I appreciate it. David Milburn, president of the Horseman's Benevolent Protective Association of BC. That was a wild day yesterday morning down at Hastings Park Racecourse in Vancouver with Canadian border officials showing up and arresting a bunch of people.